Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and today I'm joined by my co-host Paul Diggle as we discuss the French election results, what they tell us about the state of French politics, but also whether there are some lessons to be drawn around politics of inflation and the broader political environment. So, Paul, jumping straight in, why don't you start off by just reminding everyone what the result is? And perhaps it'd be useful just to say a few words about how the French presidential system works and how that fits in with the parliamentary elections as well, just to give a bit of context. Yeah, thanks, Luke. So we're talking on the day after the the French presidential election occurred. It's, of course, a two-round system. Uh, No majority for a single candidate in the first round. Then two weeks later, the two leading candidates proceed to the second round in in a head-to-head. And that occurred yesterday and Emmanuel Macron, the incumbent, the president of France, won that vote. It looks like it's about 59% to him and 41% to Marine Le Pen, his challenger. Um, That is a more emphatic victory for Macron than the polls had suggested. I think the the final polls were something like 55% to 45%. So Macron outperformed in that regard. Um, But I think it's probably important to draw comparisons to how that head-to-head shaped up five years ago in 2017. The same two candidates and and Macron won more emphatically 66% to 34%. So if you wanted to have a slightly more negative interpretation of this election from Macron's perspective, you'll say that he he lost vote share to Marine Le Pen, his far-right challenger. Um, and of course, we could look at the first round of this election as well, held two weeks ago, where although Macron um, did best among the candidates there, Marine Le Pen certainly held her own. Obviously, she proceeded to the next round. And Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left um, candidate, also performed particularly well. So it's quite a divided electorate, even if Macron has carried the day in the end. A couple of other important things to note is that uh, the abstention rate was pretty high. Turnout was, was quite low. It was the lowest turnout in a French election in over 50 years. 28% of registered voters did not come to the polls. And of those who did and voted for Macron, at least a portion of them were were probably more motivated as an anti-Le Pen vote rather than necessarily a, a pro-Macron vote. And then Luke, you asked about the, the parliamentary election. So this election yesterday was just for the presidency. In June, there is a two-round parliamentary election at the 12th and 19th of June. And that's going to be really key um, to what extent Macron is actually able to implement his policy agenda. Now, we don't actually have any polls for the legislative elections yet. The recent history has been that the president... Um, the president's party usually carries the legislature as well, that the two are often combined, and that gives the president sort of a, a free reign to appoint the prime minister to carry through their legislative agenda. But there are no polls for, for, for the legislative elections that are coming up, and there's not, a not insubstantial risk that Macron's party, La République en Marche, potentially don't form a, a majority. After all, Macron won't enjoy the the sweeping honeymoon effect that carried through to his um, party success in 2017. The political party scene in France is very divided. Um, the traditional parties of, of the centre-right and centre-left, which really didn't feature 
very strongly in the presidential election, tend to do a bit better in the parliamentary elections. There is, of course, a not insignificant um, base of support on the extreme left and right politics as well in France. So we could see quite a divided legislature and that could constrain Macron's ability to carry through some of his um, political agenda. So as you say, the, the result was probably a little bit more emphatic than it might have looked as the polling got a little bit closer in the run-up to the, the election, but still uh, a much smaller margin of victory compared to the contest five years ago. Uh, and as you say, there's sort of a collapse in support for the centre-left and centre-right parties in the first round of voting. So what does all of that tell us, if anything at all, about the success or failure of Macron's agenda? over the last few years and the the changing nature of French politics. Yeah, well, as I said, you can spin this election result both quite positively for Macron. He's the first French president to be re-elected in 20 years. He outperformed the polls and that was all against the backdrop of a challenging um, macroeconomic environment. Or you could spin the whole thing quite negatively for him. The far right got a historically high share of the vote. As I said, the abstention rate was very high. So kind of you can pick your own narrative there. But it's clear that Macron has had some successes and some failures in his first five terms, his first five years as president. Remember, he came onto the scene in 2017. He burst onto the scene as a young, dynamic answer to populism the mainstream establishment sort of answer to that huge challenge and he had an initial very big reform agenda that he laid out of that memorable speech at the sorbonne about labor market reform changing the benefit system pension reform more europe a very big vision and domestically he met a number of challenges not least of which was in the gilets jaunes protests the accusations of elitism that were leveled against him Um, I mean, in reality, he's always, of course, been part of the establishment par excellence, but initially he was kind of presented as an outsider to that. Um, I think his second term domestic reform agenda is going to be more muted, um, especially depending on the, the National Assembly, the Parliament vote, as we've talked about. But he does want to raise the pension age and, and he has had some success so far in raising France's participation rate as well. Internationally... Macron had a lot of difficulty at first there as well. He struggled to get German buy-in, Angela Merkel's buy-in, to his vision of um, common fiscal policy in Europe, maybe a common army. Um, But that all changed in a big way during the pandemic when, and now during the Russia-Ukraine war as well, when, first of all, France and Germany sort of together brokered the next-gen EU um, project and the the large amount of fiscal integration that that brought. It seemed like Europe was functional again after that. And Macron really was at the forefront of that. And now with with, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's been a sea change in Germany, um, Germany's approach militarily on the international scene, supplying arms to Ukraine. I think there is now impetus to increase European defence spending. Um, And I think that actually plays, in a way, into Macron's vision of European strategic autonomy, um, which he, of course, has been a very big proponent of. So I think you can you can see both pluses and minuses in 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 his agenda over those those first five years. So I suppose the other question about his agenda and this idea of being the bulwark against, quote unquote, 
populism is that there isn't much of a center ground of French politics left. So I guess that sort of raises the question, what happens in five years time when he can't run again? So for all that he has been politically successful in re-election and sort of bringing the whole of the center of French politics to him, there is a question of, has he almost been so successful that his legacy becomes harder to implement because there is no natural successor? Yeah, I think that's a crucial point. The, his party, La Republic en Marche, is built around him. It didn't exist before him at all. Um, and he cannot be president again after this next five years. And he has no obvious appointed successor. Um, and as you say, Luke, he has in the process absorbed, destroyed the centre ground of French politics. The Republicans and the Socialists are just not an electoral force, at least at the presidential level whatsoever. So perhaps we'll see him anoint someone over the next five years. But at the moment, there is a big question about how his legacy can continue uh, beyond his period at, at the forefront of French politics. So if I may have a go at answering my own question or perhaps offering some very speculative thoughts, I guess there has been quite a lot of excited talk recently about whether Christine Lagarde, currently the president of the European Central Bank, might return to French politics and become his prime minister. I think that is a very unlikely thing to happen for a variety of reasons. I think Lagarde would consider that quite a significant demotion in her power. Mm. But there is, I think, a more plausible path to seeing her return at the presidential level in five years' time. And I could imagine her pretty seamlessly inheriting much of the political coalition that Macron has assembled and broadly pursuing a quite similar substantive uh, agenda. But sort of just returning back to the present, I mean, it is worth saying that for all sort of the issues that we talked about, about Macron's agenda, there were also factors pushing people towards Le Pen as well, this so-called detoxification journey that her party has been on. So sort of what were some of the reasons that, you know, her support was much stronger this time around? Yeah. And just on your on your uh, Lagarde point as well, Luke, that she were that sort of hypothetical speculative scenario to occur, Lagarde would of course be mirroring the journey that, that Mario Draghi has gone on as well from being in Italian politics to being the president of the ECB to going back to a president of, of Italy. So interesting parallels there as well. But as you say, yeah, Lagarde had uh, pull factors as well. Um, and, and of course, she did very well uh, in the context of the far right's previous showing at presidential elections. Yep, she's been on a detoxification journey. I mean, that went back to her father, um, Jean-Marie Le Pen, in 2002. He secured just 18% of the vote in that election. Uh, Marine got 34% in 2017, um, and now uh, and now 41% this time around. Um, and I think she's been able to pivot away from the big focus on Frexit and a referendum on Eurozone membership, which was a pretty unpopular policy. She's downplayed somewhat her anti-immigration agenda. Um, it's still it's still clearly there. You know, things like the national priority proposal she had, increased border controls, primacy of EU law, those were all in a way anti-European policies that would have certainly put her on a on a um, collision course with Europe, but it wasn't front and centre calling for Eurozone exit in the way it was before. But then positively, she had a set of fiscal policies 
that were very attractive to many people, especially in the context of of um, high inflation and the cost of living crisis. So she was looking to lower the pension age down to 60, um, index pensions to inflation, remove income tax entirely on the under 30s, raise wages in the public sector, cut VAT on energy um, slash France's contributions to the EU. And those things all played very well in the current political environment. It's also interesting that a lot of her electoral coalition were younger. um, And that's a contrast in a way to so-called populist political movements elsewhere in Europe, which can often appeal to an older demographic. Le Pen's appeal was often younger. I think just like there was a bit of a question about Macron's future or or the the centre ground's future post-Macron, there is also a similar question vis-a-vis Le Pen. So she's lost a second successive second round of the presidential election to Macron. She's contested the presidency unsuccessfully three times. Perhaps her party or perhaps the the right will come to see her as you know yesterday's candidate. Um, it was interesting sort of looking carefully at the polls that her support often seems to dip immediately after the head-to-head debates, both in 2017 and and now as well, suggesting that perhaps she isn't such a good performer in those head-to-head policy debates. Um, she obviously had a lot of challenges on the far right as well in this election. You know, we, it, there, was, there was plenty of other people willing to take on that mantle from her. So I think there are some interesting questions about, about her as well. So it, you know, it's not Macron versus Le Pen in five years' time, that's for sure. So I wanted to pick you up there about this point on the cost of living crisis and the importance of that in French politics. I think it might have been the issue that people told pollsters it was the thing that they cared the most about. And we've talked a lot on this show about inflation, but that's you know about the economics of inflation and what it means for financial markets. But we do seem to be entering an era where it's also the politics of inflation that's going to matter a lot as well. And I guess we're not really used to that in the developed world over the last 30 years or so, where inflation and inflation control has been taken outside of the political process, being handed over to technocrats in the form of central bankers and being treated as if it were an apolitical matter. But of course, inflation does raise huge political questions around distribution, the sense of macro economic control and that bargain that this was something that existed outside of the political process sort of does rely on there being low inflation and if you know we're not of the view that this is a movement to a sustainably higher period of inflation but certainly we will be seeing high inflation for at least the next couple of years and so that sort of taking inflation outside of politics situation does look rather less untenable now. And if you go back to, say, 1970s, when inflation was last, sort of, quote unquote, out of control, the stories we tell ourselves is that that's part of what led to the significant changes in the political process around Thatcher and Reagan and all the changes that they brought about in the economic model. So I suppose my my question is, you know, given that we've seen the politics of inflation playing out in this election. We've seen historically that it's important. Are there any particular flashpoints that we should be looking to this year or beyond where this same theme might manifest again? 
Yeah, absolutely. There are um, a few, I think, set piece events on the political calendar that we should be watching. Um, we have a set of UK local elections coming up um, this year. There are general elections in, in Sweden, Brazil, Australia faces federal elections. But I think most importantly is going to be how this plays out in the US midterms um, and what happens to the control of, of, of the House and the Senate in the context of very high inflation rates, a cost of living crisis, which can in part be spun as a direct consequence of President Biden's fiscal policies. And one of the things, of course, driving high inflation was, or some would argue, the excessive amount of fiscal policy stimulus that was added um, to the economy by, by the Biden administration. So I think there it's going to be front front and centre. And it's clearly a problem for, for incumbents. It's a stick for challengers to, to beat incumbents with. And it plays very well if you are um, a slight outsider incumbent, you're able to present it as um, something um, elites don't understand, having to face very high household bills. I mean, that's maybe one way in which it's playing in the UK, you know, arguing the Conservative Party don't know what it's like to be living on the breadline. Um, I think in, in the US, it's going to play out um, as, as a way to attack out of touch Democrats who don't understand poorer Americans um, desire to, you know, to be to be driving to to need to run air conditioning uh, and in europe as i say it's a way in which um the pen was able to detoxify that the far right movement and level charges against an elitist mainstream so all those i think are, are ways in which it's going to feature in in the political debate but perhaps looking beyond those developed markets i think there's also an important consideration about how it plays out in emerging markets and in poorer parts of the world where food and energy are much larger part of the average household's consumption basket. So the last time that food prices were, were seeing very large rates of inflation, um, especially in, in the emerging world, you had the Arab Spring of the early 2010s. So it's a way in which uh, I think it can feed into social tensions and social unrest. And right now, that's particularly an issue for, I think, parts of North Africa, maybe areas of the Middle East, which there is a, a large reliance on agricultural imports from Ukraine and Russia. In some cases, those countries might be more politically unstable, poorer. And I think you could see it potentially playing out in, in, in politics there in quite a serious way. And so then finally... Another way in which this cost of living crisis, the politics around that might have legs, and you sort of touched on it there by talking about the political salience of driving and energy use in the US, is what all of this means for net zero politics. And, you know, it is very likely that part of the transition to net zero will involve relatively higher energy prices, at least for certain activities. And it's been quite striking to me at least that very little conversation so far around the high energy prices we're seeing has rested on this idea of a politics of sacrifice that these are just some of the things that you might have to give up you might have to use less energy you know in the 1970s we had three-day working weeks at its at its most extreme so sort of there were direct measures to try and reduce usage demand for energy whereas this time it feels like policies are sort of based around trying to provide income support to 
ensure people can carry on using the amount of energy that they need to in this period of higher prices. So I'm wondering, how do you think that plays out in terms of the ability of governments to push through net zero policies? I think it plays out differently in different parts of the world. So there is both a sense in which higher prices for hydrocarbons should be an impetus towards net zero, towards substitution to renewables and nuclear and away from burning carbon um, to power our economies. And that logic probably applies um, most obviously in, in Europe and the UK, to a lesser extent, where you have relatively few natural uh, in the ground energy reserves, but you have uh, plenty of experience with nuclear and you have a strong pre-existing commitment to renewables, to the energy transition and to net zero. And I think already in the in the energy, the strategic energy plans that are being released by European governments, you see a clear logic that this is um, another impetus to securing energy self-sufficiency via renewables so i think it, it helps the logic of the of the the energy transition but potentially it doesn't play out like that everywhere but i don't think it, that logic applies everywhere and in particular if you're a part of the world rich in in hydrocarbons you have a lot of energy in the ground already then i think the logic pushes in the other direction and the the desire to achieve uh, energy self-sufficiency to secure your your domestic energy supply could push you in the direction of doubling down on hydrocarbon production and that could be the case in, in the US where actually it's been probably of great strategic benefit to the US that they are essentially self-sufficient in oil and I think I think the the logic of um, high energy costs and a rising cost of living could actually see subsidies to oil production to domestic hydrocarbon extraction and potentially works against the energy transition. So that's all we have time for this week. So all that remains is for me to remind you to please do subscribe and like us on your podcast platform of preference and to say thanks very much for listening and speak to you again soon. So thanks very much. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.